Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. You mentioned, you know, before we uh, actually sort of spoke to each other, you, you'd sent a sort of quick summary through of some of the things that had happened on that deployment. And you, you talked about uh, a lot of your missions being troops in contact and some of them were danger close, which uh, is that, is that 50 meters? Is that what danger close means? Uh, it's 30 meters. It's, it can vary. Uh, and it's kind of just based on the weapon. Uh, okay. There's a couple of different numbers that we would use to say that, you know, this has a high likelihood of also hitting a friendly or also, you know. Okay. where where i was going with the question was really whether you did a lot of a lot of that work was was always under the control of a jtac or if you were independently prosecuting attacks against um targets on the ground and and really having mentioned 10 minutes or so ago all these different factions on the ground how you knew who was who so uh keeping track of who was who was a huge problem i'd say (laughs) exactly um and even for some of our u.s guys that were supporting our partner forces um they uh the guys on the ground can't usually keep everybody it's kind of like herding cats sometimes uh you they don't really sometimes um whoever the jtac is won't have a hundred percent essay on like exactly where every single you know partner force is because uh you know sometimes they don't report their positions accurately sometimes they're you know whatever and then they're taking contact and you're the jtac's trying to do his best job of saying that like okay i'm you know 95 percent sure they're at this building right here the bad guys are at this building you know you need to drop a bomb on this building over here whatever um so for us, it was um, we relied mostly on the professionalism of the JTACs um, to be able to do that, and the JTACs were able to use all kinds of other technology and stuff to to help them manage that. Um, but it was a it was a big issue for sure. The um, some of the robots in the stack helped them with that based on their sensors, and they were able to follow friendlies and track friendlies and stuff. Uh, but once you start employing dynamically uh, in the Strike Eagle, sometimes you have to choose whether you're going to track friendlies or you're going to prosecute a target, um, you know, with your sensors because you'll have to put, you know, your sniper pod into the target or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, when we're flying as a two-ship, sometimes we can handle that differently where we can have, number one, may, may uh, maintain track of the friendlies while number two, prosecute the attack, etc. You know, or you can swap depending on, uh, what the likelihood of weapons that you have and whether it's going to be a bomb on target or bomb on coordinate or whatever, whatever the structure of the nine line is. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's very hard to keep track. Um, we had some tips and tricks. I think we were using, um, once we became a little bit more experienced with the guys that we were working with and we knew them pretty well, um, we could actually look down and tell, like we knew what the movement of the SDF looked like. Like we could tell them, we could tell how they were moving, um, and tell that they were the SDF or we knew, you know, specific things about ISIS where, uh, where we used to say, okay, we're you know, pretty sure that's ISIS or whatever it is. So we had some warm and fuzzies when it came to that, although those weren't, you know, the definitive line in the sand about who is who and where they were at. 
did um so, so one of the things that I, I i was lucky enough to uh, in the aftermath of the um 391st fighter squadron at um, mountain home they went out to afghanistan uh, immediately after 9-11 i think it was october or something actually after 9-11 when they came back they talked a lot about some of the missions they were flying and and a lot of working together as two ships and four ships you know buddy lazing uh, and some fairly sad by the sounds of it some very complex stuff that they did for what was in, in effect uh, just simply blowing stuff up on the ground um was there a lot of that that went on did you fly two ships four ships what, what sort of complexity was there in the actual employment of uh of, of the airplane yeah so for two ships we that was kind of our standard operating out the door as a two ship um we had some attacks that were super complicated <laughs> um but they were well within uh, Strike Eagle's capabilities, and we did them. Uh, we had some. We, we came up with some really cool solutions to problems that we haven't really we hadn't really thought about before. And some of them involved uh, buddy lazing, which is where you know one jet will drop the bomb, the other jet will laze the bomb in, um, and and that takes a little bit of work. And th- there's a couple of reasons that would push you to be able to do that. Um, one of them would be that the aircraft dropping the bomb is not going to be able to get his laser on the target um, through the end time of fall of the weapon. Uh, so your buddy may be in a better position with his laser spot. And sometimes um, the further you are away uh, from you know a building or whatever the target is, you have this issue that we call laser spot size. So it's kind of like a flashlight. Uh, when you shine it at the wall, the further you move out, uh, the bigger the spot gets. Well, the bomb uh, sees that as well. So the smaller you can make that spot, normally the bomb will fly to that spot so it creates a little bit more accurate weapon. The bigger the spot is, sometimes you can get into problems with uh, the bomb may not fly exactly to the centroid of that spot, you know, et cetera. So you want an accurate bomb, you need a really small laser spot, um, uh, laser small, uh, spot size in order to be able to hit it and stuff. So sometimes buddy lazing would afford you the ability to do that. Or, uh, there was a lot of times where we had weather, um, uh, as well. So we would have another, uh, another strike Eagle who would be in a more advantageous situation weather wise, uh, to be able to see the target. You'd have the other guy who would drop through the clouds or whatever, and, you know, so we, we did quite a few of those. We did double and triple downs, which are dropping three different types of bombs on one pass, uh, which were uh, slightly complicated because the way it works is, um, generally speaking, the first bomb you drop, if you're headed towards the target, is going to be the last bomb that impacts uh, because the jet is moving slightly faster than the weapon is. So if you drop one bomb at say, you know, five or six miles or whatever, and then you drop the next bomb at four miles, uh, the bomb at four miles that you drop is going to get to the target faster than the one that you dropped before. Uh, so that impact, um, from the, the last bomb that you drop off the jet is going to be the first impact. So you can time that. And then we started doing things like doing variable fusing for each of those weapons. So if we had a case like a Mark 82 case, um, which was a uh, general purpose case. Uh, but if you delayed the fuse for, you know, X amount of milliseconds, what would happen is you'd have case break and then the fuse would dud. Uh, mm-hmm. So the bomb wouldn't actually explode. So what we needed to do was uh, build, start uh, burrowing in a building or something. And we would do that by having one bomb with a, you know, five millisecond delay blow up a hole you know, a second later, another bomb goes in, blows up another hole, another, you know, so you start stair-stepping these bombs in. And depending on the case and how you want to be able to attack this building, sometimes that was the only answer uh, that you had. Um, We would love to have uh, penetrating cases like Blue 109 bomb bodies, but sometimes you didn't have that. Sometimes we just had GP bombs. And so how do we get into a, you know, to the seventh floor of a building with a GP case when we know that, you know, if we set a long uh, uh, delay on the fuse is just going to dud, you know, this was kind of our answer. And then we had some other things where we had a, a building that ISIS had full up 
occupied as their, you know, machine gun outpost for the city. Uh, and they had uh, machine guns in pretty much every window. And the JTAC was like, we just really just need to blow this thing up. You know, it's like, it's nothing, it's nothing good is in this building right now. And uh, so we tried doing this thing called a kneecap and it was like a low impact angle on a bomb that would hit the base of the building and get the building to collapse over. Um, so, and, and that was kind of a, a challenge because we needed to get the impact angle of the bomb right to hit the base of this, to be able to fall down. And um, so there was a, there's a lot of clever weaponeering that we, we went through and none of these were in any manuals about, you know, anywhere. And, some people in the in the Nellis area would scoff at us for uh, for what we were doing, but we would point to it and say, "Hey, listen, it worked," you know. So, so yeah. did you manage to bring that building down? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> yep. So, are those things then? Are they sort of canned? tactics that you already know about uh, or are you required to have the mental dexterity in the jet to do the calculations and figure out what the fusing should be and which one should go first i mean you know if, if you know you want to do a particular achieve a particular effect is there just simply a a game plan that you get out and just say well this is exactly how we do it no it it, it actually it, there are some like know, foundational baseline general knowledge that you know about you know, this bomb is going to be good on this type for this type of effect. This bomb is going to be good penetrating this. But the one of the problems that you run into when you go into any type of um, uh, different environment is that the concrete like density in Syria might be different than the concrete density in Iraq. So therefore, your delays on your fusing might be completely different, or the building that you're attacking is built differently than the building next to it. Uh, therefore, you're going to need a different weapon you're in combo. So for the Wizos, um, that was sort of the bread and butter of them being able to study and know exactly that, hey, I could get a GBU-39 or an STB into this type of a building with this type of effect um, and, and be able to do that really, really well um, to the point where uh, we were taking back knowledge and saying, hey, listen, we tried this, uh, this worked, or, hey, we tried this and it didn't work. We recommend doing this in the future uh, based on this fuse. And every once in a while, we would get like a rash of fuses that would dud at certain delay settings. And then we'd, we'd find out, you know, what delay setting those, you know, and then fix them and stuff. And it was a constant learning process and evolution of tactics that you were doing. And um, you could reasonably expect that in any wartime scenario that you should be able to have the mental dexterity to be able to consistently evolve tactics, uh, to be able to meet your mission objective. It's not, there's not just a, um, you know, one playbook that you, you know, and then that's it. You know, you have to call audibles every once in a while and try to figure out where, you know, how you can pick through the defense. It's interesting. You, you talked about corporate knowledge a couple of times, and I, I suppose if you, you know, I just mentioned interviewing guys in sort of early two thousand two who had been out to Afghanistan and um, you know for enduring freedom. Uh, so urban warfare uh, in those sorts of you know sort of desert environments and um, you know sort of those countries effectively had been going on for some time. You you would assume that all that you needed to know had already been learnt. Um, is, is that an unfair assumption? I would like to think that if we knew everything, we would have already solved all of the problems that we have. Um, but I, there's also a component of guys will learn a lot. And for whatever reason, the squadron behind them just doesn't, soak it in or doesn't care you know <laughs> same thing with some units that rip out other units and especially when you have kind of a rotation of folks going in every six months or eight months or nine months or 12 months or whatever it is um those guys just may not you know care to learn everything from the unit in front of them and the unit in front of them may be too tired to say hey listen this is everything that we learned you know I still find myself in, you know, trivial arguments with guys here about, you know, 
how to get a GB12 into a cave or something like that and say something and I'll say, have you ever actually done that before? No, I haven't. And I was like, okay, well, that's not going to work because you know, we did that all the time and uh, this is how you do it. And so there's still a, uh, I guess, a, a knowledge gap that I feel like people learn the same lessons over and over and over and over again. Um, and then some of them don't really, I guess, give enough um, thought to how, uh, things are going to evolve over time and stuff and how, uh, the enemy is learning what you're doing because you're out there demonstrating everything that you're, you know, all of your tactics. So the enemy is consistently learning stuff and, uh, they're able to, you know, they're not dumb. The, the ISIS guys were, they were brutal and absolutely crazy and, terrible, but they weren't stupid in a lot of tactical scenarios. Like they, they were doing some pretty clever things. And occasionally you would get guys that, you know, cause all the guys that survived in ISIS were usually the clever, the clever guys. Uh, so they were coming up with some, you know, unique, uh, unique things that we had to figure out how to, oh, okay. All right. Well, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to figure out how to solve this problem or, or whatever. And, uh, I, I think that's true across, you know, combat writ large, so I don't know if that uh, that's what you're asking specifically. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a combination of things, isn't it? I mean, it, you know, the, the the term corporate knowledge you know suggests that it's just in someone's head rather than codified in, in a tactics manual or whatever. And it's just, I suppose, I'm just curious. I think. Um, you know, to to know whether or not guys, if you, they're probably retired by now, but if you went and talked to somebody who was flying in two thousand and one. And said to them, you know, were you doing these things? Because these these guys are learning about them now. And to hear whether or not they would say, well, yeah, I could have told them that. Or, you know, and I suppose sort of that you, you talk about the joint program of Fuse and and new weapons. And so perhaps that changes the picture too. So um, so, so can we talk a little bit about Russia then? Um, well, not Russia, the country, but uh, the Russian forces who are in, in theatre. What, what can you say about um those forces and your interactions with them and um, your, your experience in general. So we had uh, some interesting experiences with the Russians. Um, they were obviously supporting Assad. Uh, they were targeting ISIS uh, and the Syrian rebels that were trying to overthrow Assad as well. Um, so in some ways we had uh, goals that were lined up and then in some ways we didn't. Um, and from the air crew perspective, one of the things that we tried to become very familiar with was, uh, what was the administration's uh, stance on, uh, Russia and, you know, what was their strategy in the Middle East, um, what was Russia's strategy in the Middle East and then what was the U S strategy in the Middle East and then how exactly did uh, the administration, the DOD, um, want us to handle our interactions with the Russians? And, uh, you know, we often wondered what kind of back channel stuff was going on uh, with the Russians and uh, how we were uh, coordinating things or deconflicting things and, and stuff. I think, honestly, you know, once everything's out there, I don't, I don't really think, you know, and, should have caveat this up front with everything I'm saying is that, you know, my view does not, is not the DOD's view. Uh, so everything that I'm saying is completely of my own opinion, as it were. So it's not an official position at all. Uh, I should have said that up front, but uh, what I got out of it and what I kind of believed was that I, I didn't think Russia was interested in starting World War III in Syria. And I don't think the U S was interested in starting world war three. Um, but I do think that there were some escalation pathways that we didn't quite acknowledge at the time. Uh, and we didn't see. And part of the challenge for air crew, um, specifically was trying to identify escalation pathways and then deescalate things to the maximum extent we could while preserving, you know, our own forces and not, um, exposing them to unnecessary risk. So it's a lot easier. Uh, it's a lot easier said than done. Um, I guess I would throw the analogy out there of like, you know, if you if you go into a bar and somebody's shit talking you into a bar, it's you know 
do you want to get into a fight in the bar? Do you want to try to deescalate things? Is it worth it? So there's a hundred other variables, right. Uh, that are going on there. And that was essentially how Syria was. There was a ton of different variables. Uh, our mission was pretty specific that we were countering ISIS. Um, and we were trying to work through ISIS and then try to restabilize Iraq. Um, so if things escalated with the Russians, that would naturally um, take away from our mission with ISIS. And a lot of it was un like unnecessary. Um, you know, I don't know. It, we just didn't really, we were going to protect the Americans at, at all costs uh, that we could, but at the same time, um, we got to figure out how to kind of pat our head and rubber belly at the same time when it comes to how do you deescalate things and then how do you protect Americans? Um, which, um, like I was telling you before, a lot of people will uh, shit talk the uh, Syrian scenario as, you know, well, that's not, you know, the World War II scenario where it's super non permissive, you know, whatever. Syria is very permissive and it's easy and it's just cast and all this sort of stuff. But Realistically, uh, the decisions that guys were making were extremely complicated uh, decisions on whether or not to uh, to shoot, you know, down a Russian or shoot down a Syrian or, or whatever it was. Um, and a lot of those were not clear cut at all. Um, they were extremely great decisions, and they had tremendous consequences that went with them. Um, but at the end of the day, most of the air crew were you know, adamant about protecting the guys on the ground. Um, and they would do it as much as the rules of engagement would allow them to. Um, and then there was a sort of a component of the nature of the fight, um, and having Americans in Syria, uh, was exposing those Americans to a level of risk, um, that you couldn't entirely mitigate. Um, there were certain scenarios that were going on where you just, you couldn't mitigate risk at all times. Um, and, um, so that was more on the ground commanders, uh, within Syria to, uh, if they wanted to buy that risk or, or not, if it was worth the, uh, the objective in, in, um, of taking ISIS. And from when we got there in 2017, the way that the war was going at that point was they were very adamant about, you know, we want to make sure that we kill out ISIS, like, let's not, you know, screw around. Let's just do it and get it over with. Um, so that's why we ramped up strikes and that's why, uh, things became a little bit more focused on, uh, just making it happen, uh, as it were. So I don't know if that danced around the question or answered it at all. It does. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Russians were, yeah, the, the Russians were an interesting group of, the cats for sure. They, uh, we had a rough deconfliction with them in 2017 of basically like, you know, you guys stay on this side of the river, we'll stay on this side of the river. Uh, and then that, that never really got, uh, it wasn't really that solid. Um, so we had a couple instances, uh, with the Russians where we thought that they were escalating things, uh, by dropping, uh, extremely close to us positions. Um, and we weren't sure if they had bad Intel or, or whatever it was. Um, and we tried to mitigate it to the max extent that we could. We ended up um, doing that against a, a Su-34 that dropped really close to a U.S. position. And uh, we ended up doing this thing called a headbutt, which is, you know, flying in front of them um, and dropping out some flares. And he seemed to think, what the hell are you guys doing? You know, and all these flares are coming out. And, oh, by the way, this is at nighttime and uh, semi in the clouds. It was broken weather and there's some 57 millimeter coming out from Daz at the same time they were shooting at the Russians and us and ISIS was, and it was a big cluster, but, um, uh, so things got kind of out of hand, uh, in one of those scenarios and we ended up merging, uh, you know, getting pretty close to a Su-30 at night, uh, which was, you know, another interesting thing, but the, the whole idea really was that, uh, the air crew, needed to try to figure out a way uh, to deescalate the situation. The last thing we wanted to do was, you know, the Russians go full court press and start shooting down some of our AFSOC guys. And, you know, we have to do CSAR over 
or combat search and rescue over Derizor, you know, an ISIS country or you know, whatever it is. We didn't want the situation to get worse. And at the same time, you know, we, we weren't really interested in war with the Russians and same kind of went with the Syrians. Um, despite that whole uh, Hornet shoot down of the fitter in North Syria, um, which was around about the same time uh, as our uh, shoot down of the uh, uh, Iranian Shahid. But um yeah, it was, uh, you know, how much do you want to escalate with these guys? And is it really worth it, you know, in the end? So, the, the, I mean, the Russians have got a very, um, you know, I, I, it's sort of admirable in a way that um, they do what they want to do. That's how it, that's how it appears to, 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 to me, at least. And, um, you know, there's that video of the Su-27 um almost ramming into a, 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 an F-15C. I think it was a Lake Heath Eagle, just super aggressive. Um, you know, is, is there a, a part of you, because when I think about that, I think, well, how would I respond to that? And, and, I, and I think, thank goodness, I'm not an, an Eagle pilot because I probably wouldn't have responded to it in the right way. But is there a part of you that, that feels like, so, okay, you've got the rules, um, you know what you can and can't do, Um and you've already explained that you don't want to escalate because that could result in some other friendlies getting shot down and so on and so forth. But is, is there a part of you that thinks, well, actually, I just also have to maintain the, the higher ground, you know, sort of, you know, be the maturer of, of the two? Um, or is there, does the, does the sort of type A, um, sort of personality kick in and you, and you just think, well, fuck it, I just want to shoot them down? <laughs> well, there, yeah. Who doesn't want to be the first? to shoot down a, you know, a flanker or whatever. And I think the flanker pilots would probably say the same about, you know, us, uh, to that point. But, uh, but there is a level of professionalism that comes with fighter pilots. Let's say that, you know, you're a, you're, you're an officer in the art of war, you know, first and foremost. And, uh, despite what, you know, you're, your ambitions are or whatever, you know, and I just want to go out and, you know, shoot this guy down or whatever. I, I don't know. I, that never really crossed my mind too much. Um, it, I guess you could call it like, you have to have, have very controlled aggression. Um, and that's one of the disciplined things about, um, you know, being a fighter pilot, one of the mottos of the 482nd, you know, which was, you know, my squadron during the deployment was violent, tactical and disciplined. And it was, you had to be very, uh, disciplined about, uh, what you're going to do. And, and that takes it, it's easier said than done sometimes. And sometimes you get caught up in the moment and you don't know what he's going to do. And, you know, he's, he's got you in a weapons engagement zone. And, you know, if you don't shoot first, you're going to die. And, you know, all these thoughts will go through your mind, but at the same time, you have to just, you know, bitch be cool, just <laughs> slow down, chill out, just figure out. Okay. I need to get leverage on the situation or maybe I can de-escalate this somehow, especially in, in Russia is a little bit of a different animal um, that we're not at war with Russia. Right. So uh, the U S I mean, yeah, sure. We were staring across, uh, you know, at the Soviet union for quite a long time, but we're not at war with Russia, you know, yet or whatever. And, we have to be very tempered to say that, you know, is this small little action in, you know, the Baltics gonna, you know, or, you know, with a B-52 or, or a uh, C model or, you know, whatever it is, is this really what, what I want to, you know, sell the farm for, uh, as it were. So, uh, one thing that I, I'm, I've been very impressed with, at least, was the level of professionalism from uh, pilots, and especially in the RAF and then in the uh, United States Air Force, of a level of professionalism walking out the door and saying that these situations that we get into are what we thrive in. And we can handle the stress in a very cool, calm, and collected manner uh, and then be able to you know, prosecute whenever we need to. So as soon as that, you know, guy's declared hostile, we can go out and we can win with no problem. Uh, up until that point, though, we have to have a level of discipline that, um, you know, tempers the tempers what's going on. And 
so some guys will, will call bullshit on that. And, you know, I'm, I'm aggressive. If he ever, you know, spiked into me, I'd turn around and I'd shoot him or whatever. And like, okay, sweet. You know, <laughs> so. Um, what, uh, what about the, the sort of the bomb dropping scenario though? Um, you know, so you've got somebody who is, is potentially going to drop a bomb on, on an American or, or a coalition sort of ground unit do you do you just call them up um can you just use the guard frequency and just say hey do you guys know you're going to drop something that, that could uh, you know kill some americans i mean how do you how do you actually other than the headbutt how do you make sure that because i think you already mentioned maybe they've got some bad intel or, or whatever how, how do you you know there must be a way of saying to them hey don't do it yep uh, the guard frequency is normally the first, you know, if they're up on guard, then we can try. Uh, I don't speak very good Russian, so I don't know if they would understand what I'm saying. Uh, and we'll leave it to AWACS. Um, normally they, you know, throw out the, the guard warnings on there, uh, to give them a chance to be able to say, Oh, yep. Uh, you know, we messed up that or, or whatever, or we weren't tracking that there was a U.S. position there. Um, the, we had that situation, obviously, in the south of Syria with the Iranians and the Shahid, uh, and then it being unmanned was a little bit easier uh, decision to just go ahead and shoot it down uh, when we did. And even though we weren't officially at war with Iran, um, and then that led to a that was a kind of complicated situation, as it were. Um, but uh, as far as the headbutt is, is not a ideal tactic uh, going out the door with at all either because you're you're kind of escalating things you know i mean you're throwing you know if you're throwing flares out of the jet then he doesn't know if they're maybe that's a missile coming off he, he we have no idea we can't really get into his head about what he's expecting does he see us in time is this just this fighter that just breaks right into him you know uh is he tracking that we're even there and then you're you're kind of shining your ass at them because you're opening yourself up to a wes as soon as you do a headbutt uh, for the most part. So uh, it's, it's not, you know, from every fighter pilot is not your preferred, you know, technique uh, uh, to try to deescalate things. But, um, but at the end of the day, you know, if he, if they messed up to the point of, you know, dropping on friendlies, like he's already pretty much, signed up for what's going to happen next. And, uh, I thought the coalition, at least in OIR was pretty clear about self-defense when it came to saying that, um, you know, if this happens, like we're going to defend the U S and, you know, we'll talk about it, you know, in Geneva some other time, but, but this is what we're going to do, you know, right now to be able to do it. Um, so I thought that that was pretty clear. Um, whereas, you know, I always wondered about Afghanistan from that. The temperament in Afghanistan was completely different than what was going on in Syria. Those are two diff completely different places that had completely different, um, really kind of a whole different outlook on the rules of engagement and stuff. So, um, so yeah, that was pretty interesting. You mentioned now a couple of times the Iranian drone. So, so tell us about that then, because because you, you, your squadron shot two AMRAMs, didn't it, during that deployment? I'm sure you said they they dropped they shot two AMRAMs. Yeah, two, that's right. Um, they weren't both at the drone, were they? Uh, there was two AM120s that went to two different uh, Shahids. Mm -hmm. can, can you tell us the stories? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, the uh, the first one, um, I was flying in the backseat of a guy named uh, Meister Rankin, who was our squadron commander at the time. And um, we had two guys on the, uh, you know, another crew on the wing, a great dude. Um, this guy, Alex Harvey, um, boss Harvey, ended up going to the F-35. And then this other guy, Sith Lombardo, that uh, he's an FTU instructor right now. And they were incredible uh, wingmen. And we were supporting a... Um, uh, Green Beret team uh, that was training a group of um, uh, partner forces uh, down in South Syria. And things had started escalating a little bit uh, with the Iranian militias around there and the Syrians. Um, and they had a couple of little firefights between 
know, groups. And there was a, uh, a predator that had responded to a, um, a vehicle that was driving super fast at this, uh, green gray team and ended up, um, taking it out with a hellfire and stuff. So, uh, that, that kind of sets the pace of things started escalating a little bit between everybody. And, and again, it was kind of one of those self-defense, uh, scenarios. So, um, the, we started doing our normal, uh, defensive counter air, uh, cap and the drones were a little bit tricky to pick up, uh, on our radars at the time we had the old radar, the APG 70. Um, so, you know, they're, they're pretty slow. They're, you know, they're not very big. So, um, anyways, we ended up finding, uh, one of them and, uh, it wasn't uncommon to see, uh, a bunch of different drones out in Syria because it was Syria and, you know, we didn't own Syria at the time or we weren't, you know, so the Iranians could fly as many drones as they wanted to in Syria, you know, and we weren't at war with Iran and we weren't at war with Syria. So, you know, whatever. Anyways. So the, uh, so that had started escalating and stuff and we kind of knew going on. I, we had picked up a Shahid 129. That's about roughly about the size of a predator. Uh, and it had two of the, uh, what's basically like a, a Iranian version of a hellfire, uh, on the wings. And we saw that in the pod. And so I thought, well, I think, you know, this could start to escalate a little bit more and I wouldn't be surprised if the Iranians came over and wanted to shoot at, you know, close, at least close to the Americans or at our partner forces or something like that, based on what had just happened, kind of a tit for tat sort of thing. And we, so we found it and we were getting kind of low in gas and we had to go to the tanker and we wanted to try to time our trip to the tanker to be able to get back on station by the time this thing had, um, you know, gotten close to the friendlies cause it's only moving at a hundred knots or so or whatever. Um, so we go to the tanker, come back and I'm talking to the JTAC. Um, and the JTAC says, Hey, you know, I think this dude just shot at us and we're like, Oh, uh, all right. Well, you know, we'll shoot him down. Uh, and so we told the Kayak that, and, um, the Kayak said, or Taxi 2 said, nope, don't shoot him down. Uh, we're going to do some non-kinetic effects. And, uh, you know, I rolled my eyes and we had a conversation between the both of us and I was like, let's just shoot it down. And so he's like, no, 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 just see if this non-kinetic effects, you know, see if they work or whatever. And so two, uh, Russian flankers had appeared, uh, uh, on station right behind us. So they dragged, they were about 6,000 feet in trail and locking us up. And we locked up this, uh, Shahid and it started to get closer, um, to the friendlies, uh, to this American position. And we found out that the first, uh, hellfire that they shot had dudded and landed kind of like in the desert ish. Uh, so it was worthy to be a hostile act. Um, but thankfully it hadn't killed anybody. Um, so the rules kind of the hostile act, hostile intent kind of allowed us to deem that, you know, Iranian drone is hostile. Therefore we could shoot it down, um, which was the preferred course of action. Um, at least that I preferred. And we uncaged the, uh, aim nine, which we had these shitty aim nine mics on the jet, uh, and then uncaged it and a secret didn't do shit. So, um, we ended up winning, uh, going to the, a 120 and the KX said, Hey, we're still working on kinetics or whatever. It didn't appear to be doing anything. Uh, it still ended up being tracking straight towards the friendlies. And I was like, listen, like the KX, they don't know what's going on right now. AWAX doesn't know what's going on right now. Let's just shoot and you know, whatever. So we have this long conversation that goes back and forth. And then, so the front seat, uh, so Maestro sets it up and he says, well, you know, we're going to shoot it down. I just, I just don't want all this wreckage to land on the Syrians and then them freak out. And then this whole thing go crazy. And we also didn't want to set it up to the point where, you know, if this AMRAM comes off and it accidentally picks up one of the flankers and you shoot down a Russian, you know, sets off this whole Mexican standoff thing that we have going on. 
So we didn't want that. We didn't want the Russians to get super spooked, even though they were spiking into us and they had us in a very weird position. Uh, essentially, they were telling us, don't shoot this she down. And so we had our wingman swing out and then lock up the other flanker behind him. And then this other flanker locked him up. Uh, so it was a full up, you know, a Mexican standoff that was going on. And anyways, I uh, decided, hey, listen, we're just going to shoot. And so we shot uh, the M120. Uh, and it ended up splashing the Shahid and he didn't shoot any more, uh, hellfires at the, uh, us dudes on the ground. Um, so we, we were pretty much at bingo, slightly below bingo at the time, uh, based on that, uh, the length of that engagement and how much we had grabbed from the tanker, which was evidently not enough, but it was more of a matter of trying to get back on time, you know, whatever, um, the, Guys on the ground were a little bit upset that it had taken that long based on the non-kinetic effect coordination with the KOC. And then, you know, it was kind of a huge cluster and they weren't, the guys on the ground weren't super happy about it. Um, but at the same time, you know, like, you know, they're in Syria and it's not like we own Syria, you know, and we weren't at war with Iran. So there, there, there is a, a level of, risk that you assume, you know, from the ground force, uh, components perspective, and you just can't shoot everybody all the time to, you know, make this little enclave for yourself. But, you know, we tried the best we could to do both. Um, so we ended up shooting it and then we weren't really down with the whole non-kinetic effect thing. We didn't really, you know, jamming or whatever. We didn't really think that was working and it's impossible to tell if it's working. Um, other than, you know, I don't know. So, Anyways, we just decided that, you know, whatever, we're just going to shoot it. And we shot. Uh, and then we had two Hornets that were late to rip us out, and um, which we were a little bit upset about, but hey, whatever. And then uh, we gave them an AO handoff and said, hey, listen, um, you know, we think that uh, there's a, uh, a Su-22 taken off from Tyus, which is, you know, a little bit north of there. Uh, and we don't have the gas to stick around. Um, but you know, Hey, we just shot down this Iranian drone. You guys have it. Good luck. You know, <laughs> like this whole thing's going to explode. Here you go. And, uh, and they were definitely not fenced in, uh, for that. Uh, it, it was for them, it was probably going to be a little bit more of a, a standard, you know, one each DCA cap where nothing happens out of the ordinary. And here we were, you know, we just called a splash on the radio with a bullseye and all this sort of stuff, which you never hear. Um, so we start our, you know, kind of super fuel conserving climb back to our base because we had like no gas and we listened to the events that happened, uh, next, which were super unfortunate, uh, and were not the, um, uh, the Hornet, it was not the Hornet shoot down that would happen later, um, like 10 days later up in, uh, Raqqa, it was a different uh, series of events, which I won't go into, but, um, it ended up making the Kayak super mad, um, which then drove some of the events that happened in Raqqa. But, um, but anyways, we landed, which was kind of cool because, uh, normally fighters go, uh, at the end of the runway, they get de-armed. Um, so you have an arming crew out there and a de-arming crew and they come, they safe up the weapons and stuff. If you have any on there and safe up the chaff and flare and stuff. And, uh, I remember looking, uh, at the armament guys coming up to the jet and they noticed that there was an AMRAM missing. <laughs> and you could tell that the way they looked at me and looked at Maestro, they were like, did it fall off? You know, <laughs> did, we, did we just lose one in the desert? Was it our fault? You know, did we not like, you know, whatever. And so we gave them a thumbs up. Like it was, you know, everything was like it should be. And then they were super happy. And then we shut down the jet and got out and all the maintainers could not have been happier and that a live AMRAM had come off the jet. Uh, and then we got to talking about, you know, we did our debrief, went over the situation, you know, what could we have done better? You know, how, how could we have responded a little bit, uh, faster maybe, or how could we have made the ROE, you know, work to our advantage or whatever. And, um, it, it was not an, it, it was definitely not an easy problem to solve. And up to that point, you know, shooting something with an AIM-120 was super taboo. I mean, that hadn't been, uh, done for quite some time. Uh, and it was not, not normal, uh, as it were. Um, so 
from our cockpit to, we didn't know how the Kayak was going to react to that. You know, uh, we, we did, we, we honestly didn't know that it could have been like, how, how dare you, you know, <laughs> you know, you just, you know, you just ruined everything you know, or, or whatever. We had this doped and you guys ruined it, but they were ended up being okay with the uh, situation, how it happened and, and stuff. But, uh, but, but it was definitely not a, not an easy seal to break. That makes sense. Did, did, did there, um, I mean, was there any comeback then? Did anybody pick up the phone and say, Hey, you need to come and explain to me why you made the decision or did, did you just move on to the next mission? Uh, yeah, we had a few, um, emails that kind of went back and forth. Um, mostly the ground component wasn't super excited about the timeliness and the coordination required. And they wanted to make sure that for future, uh, coordination, there was a line in the sand about, um, you know, what do we, what would we describe as a hostile act or what would we describe as hostile intent? Because, we weren't officially at war with Iran or Syria. So therefore in order to be able to, um, you know, in order to be able to make self-defense your reason for shooting them down, you kind of had to have a, some sort of a definition to say that, Hey, listen, if this happens, uh, this is worthy of self-defense. Uh, and then you have to take that scenario and get it to the air crew and say, Hey, listen, you're, you know, if this scenario happens at this time, like this is when you go master them hot, you know, press the pickle button. Um, and, and, and that wasn't really fleshed out at all up until, uh, that she heat shoot down after that is when they took it a lot more serious and they're like, Oh, well, I guess, you know, maybe this situation can <laughs> happen because, uh, we had definitely gone through, you know, at least some of us, you know, lower level people had, you know, asked the question several times, Hey, listen, if this theoretical scenario happens, what do you want me to do? And, you know, usually it was just crickets <laughs> and nobody really wanted to take ownership to say, yeah, man, just, you know, shoot them down or whatever. Uh, nobody wanted to say that. Um, so you're like, well, when do you want me to shoot them down? And they're like, you just have to know. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that. You know? And, um, so it, it didn't give you the warm and fuzzies that you were making a like, you know, fully up blessed, you know, decision. Uh, at the same time, though, as long as you knew the ROE, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you knew the ROE and you knew that you could be justified, pull up on self-defense or whatever it was and say, that, hey, listen, I knew the ROE and I was operating in accordance with the ROE. And these were my indicators that I was using, you know, then. Uh, you would have a legal foot to stand on. Um, and, and, and I hate being the guy that is like, well, you know, legal this or legal that. But uh, at the same time, um, you know, war operates within a structure of, you know, it's the, the Western way of war. Um, and it's just how we do things. So um, so we had to know that. And, and, and those are really tricky decisions to make. So, well, What about the second shoot down and the second M120 launch. The the second one was uh was it's actually pretty funny. Uh there's a lot of inside uh knowledge that happened <laughs> um on that one that uh it was uh yeah it was, it was pretty comical. They so at that point we kind of made our decision about what constitutes a you know hostile act and this Shahid did it no problem just and the dude so it was a wingman who found it and like a good wingman he said um hey lead i found this shahid you know right here and uh lead said cool and turned around and shot it and <laughs> so <laughs> um it was kind of funny for us because um you know the, the flight lead just shot it instead of the wingman, you know, the wingman found it. The wingman did all the work. The flight lead just said, cool, you know, took it Fox three, you know? So, um, it was good. Uh, it was a good time that, and that one worked out a little bit, a little bit easier. It was a, it's kind of a crazy time though. 
as we were deployed, like starting to hear of, so we shot down that she, uh, the Hornet then shoots down the, um, uh, fitter and then we shoot down another Shahid. We, we were like, wow, this, you know, there's three shoot downs within a month. Uh, man, shit's getting real, you know? And, uh, so we were going out the door and everybody was, you know, every air crew that stepped was like, we're going to be the next ones to shoot something down <laughs> or whatever. We hope we are. And, uh, and then we had to temper that with saying, Hey guys, like, you know, there's super fangs out because everybody wanted a piece of that. Um, and then you had to, Hey guys, you know, don't unnecessarily escalate, um, the situation just because, you know, you're, you want your name on a wall somewhere, you know? Do you, do you get bragging rights for shooting down a drone? Is that, I mean, is that something, I mean, are the, are the light gray guys coming in and, and sort of, uh, laughing at you for doing that or you, is that a serious accomplishment? So from my experience, no one gives a shit. <laughs> so, um, nobody cares. It's not a, it's a non-event. It's like I dropped a GB 38 on something. Uh, nobody cares. Uh, and then, I mean, to be fair, like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's whatever. I don't care. Uh, supposedly you're supposed to get a tour of the Raytheon factory and all that sort of stuff. I never got it. So, (laughs) you know, uh, so you're, yeah, I I never got anything. I think I, I don't even know if I got a coin from Raytheon for that thing. Uh, (laughs) um, yeah, literally like pretty much, uh, from the, you know, outside perspective, like nobody cares. Um, they, uh, they put a star on the jet uh, that shot it down, and I don't know if anybody remembers who shot it down or whatever, uh, but, um, yeah, it's in the community, it was kind of like a, you know, interesting but not compelling thing and for, for, for both of them. Um, so I suspect in the future we'll probably have a lot more uh, UAV shootdowns uh, based on the kind of the nature of combat right now. Um, so I don't know, maybe it'll get more notoriety, but the old, the old deal is the man fighter, you know, then you really, uh, you really do that. So, yeah. 